good music this morning, the children and the choir and the orchestra. Thank you so much. Uh, glad to see you this morning. Take your copy of God's Word and go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Book of Hebrews, chapter 10. I pray you have a copy of God's Word with you, either in old-fashioned paper form or electronic form, one or the other. Uh, Hebrews, chapter 10. As we've been in this series on Sunday mornings, moving through the book of Hebrews, we come this morning to the writer's discussion of the superior sacrifice of Christ. Now, you will remember through this study, if you've been here for part of it or all of it, and by the way, all of it can be found online in the archives if you want to hear the ones you missed, the writer has been throughout this book in a process of pointing out to those Hebrew Christians that Jesus is greater than what they knew under the Old Testament law, what they knew under the Old Covenant. And he's done it in several ways. Let me just remind you by way of introduction. Number one, he began early in the book by pointing out that Jesus is superior to the angels. Uh, the Jews held the angels in high esteem. They were messengers, and you read about them all in the Old Testament. But he said to them, Jesus is greater than the angels, and he pointed out Jesus created the angels. The angels obey Christ. They do his bidding. They serve him. They worship him. And so he pointed out that Jesus is greater than the angels. And then he, he took it up a notch. He said, not only is Jesus greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses. That would have got their attention because they held Moses in high esteem. Moses was the, the lawgiver, the deliverer, the one who led them across the wilderness. And uh, the Jews in their storied past held Moses in high esteem. He was a, a great man of God, declared God himself, declared Moses' greatness. But he said, Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses served Jesus. Moses served the Lord. The Lord led uh, Moses, gave him the ability to do the things he did. So he pointed out Jesus is greater than Moses. Then he said, again, he took it up another notch. He said, by the way, Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Aaronic priesthood. That, that again would have grabbed their attention because they held the priesthood in high esteem. Aaron, the first high priest, you remember this guy named Melchizedek in the book of Genesis, Abraham had gone out, fought with Ketterly Omer and the kings of the east, defeated them and recovered people that were taken captive and all the stuff and brought it back. And when he came back, Melchizedek, the high priest of the most high God, came out and met Abraham and Abraham received a blessing from him and Abraham gave a tithe. And his point was, Jesus has a greater priesthood after the order of Melchizedek because Aaron was in Abraham at the time and showed submission to this Melchizedek and Jesus as a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. If that wasn't enough to make those Jewish Christians' heads swirl a little bit, he said, not only is Jesus greater in his priesthood, we saw last week he's greater in the new covenant that he brought in. Under the law, the covenant of the law was sacrificial system with animals and the tabernacle and the temple. And he pointed out last week that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. Those things were a, a foreshadow, a picture of what was to come. And the thing fulfilling it is always better than that which points to it. And so he said, Jesus has a better covenant. And by the way, you and I should be very thankful today that we live under the covenant of grace. We simply come to Jesus Christ who finished the process. We confess our sins, ask for his forgiveness. God saves us, makes us his own we don't have to do anything. The sacrifices and the offerings have been made. So with all this superiority, we come this morning in chapter 10, 
the writer says, not only is Jesus superior in all these ways, he provided the superior sacrifice for sin. Look at verses one through four of Hebrews 10. The writer said, for the law, having a, a shadow of the things or good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. He says two important things about the old covenant to point to the greatness of the sacrifice of Christ. Number one, he said the old was a shadow of the new. Skia uh, is the Greek word. It means, a, it means a pale shadow of the reality. And what he was saying is that these Old Testament sacrifices were not the reality. They were a shadow of the reality. They weren't the real thing. The real thing was coming. And the real sacrifice, the real thing that was coming was Jesus. And so as a shadow, a skia, a pale, a pale picture, if you will, of what was to come, these offerings in the Old Testament, the animal offerings, had no power to remove sin, no power to atone for sin, to save a person's soul. They were simply a picture. God gave them credit when they brought those offerings by faith. God gave them credit looking forward to Jesus. Remember we said last week, someone might say, well, how were the Old Testament saints saved if there was no no uh, atoning sacrifice, just these animals and their blood that can never take away sin. And I, I remember we said, God saved them on credit. God saved them looking forward to Christ, but they were saved nonetheless by faith. And God counted their faith to them for righteousness as he did Abraham, looking forward to the perfect sacrifice that would be Christ when he came. Secondly, he says very clearly in here that these old covenants could not make anyone perfect. Teleao. It means to bring to completion. It means to bring to the end goal, to bring to the purpose. God the Father has an end goal for you. It is to be pardoned of your sin, restored to a relationship with him, and adopted into his family. The blood of animals can't bring you to that. The blood of animals can't, can't complete the process. They can bring no perfection. But I got good news for you. In Jesus Christ, there is perfection. In Jesus Christ, there's completion of the process. In Jesus Christ, there's forgiveness of sin. And when we come to Christ by faith and we confess and we ask for his forgiveness, we are perfected before God. Now, someone might say then, why all the Old Testament sacrifices? Let me give you three reasons why God gave the Old Testament system, the old covenant, before he brought in the new. The first one is what we were just talking about, a foreshadow, a picture. Everything in the Old Testament, I'm going to show you that before we close this morning. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, without exception. <clears throat> when you read the law and you read all the exercises of the law and you read all the requirements for holiness and ceremonial cleanliness and, and all the things that were required, and it is extensive when you read the law, what was all that for? To point to us that the perfection we need, we can't obtain to show us that what we need, we can't get there, to show us that what God requires, we don't have, and to say, but I love you, and I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to provide what you need, and that happened in Jesus Christ. 
So all that Old Testament system was a, a picture. Twice a day, morning and evening, they had to make sacrifices in the tabernacle or the temple. Twice a day, they brought offerings. Twice a day, they were reminded of where we need to be and we can't get there. Twice a day. God said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to help you, but look what's coming. Jesus Christ, my son. Number two, the penalty of sin is ugly. In our 21st century touchy-feely society, don't hurt nobody's feelings attitude, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> We've lost the knowledge of the ugliness of sin. We really have. We've lost how serious sin is. Because in our day, we think, well, someone did this terrible thing or sinned or, or broke the law or broke God's law or did this thing. And today, we just think everybody can do whatever they want to do, and it's okay. Not so these sacrifices were messy. And they brought those animals in there and slew them. Blood is everywhere. What was that a reminder of? The wages of sin is death. Twice a day, they're reminded the wages of sin is death. It has been said historically, now grab this with your mind, that at the Passover, up to 300,000 lambs were slain in the Passover. In fact, so many were slain historically, when you read about it, they had specially made troughs that ran out of the temple, that the blood would run down into these troughs, run down into Kidron Valley, into the, into the creek, and the creek would run red. There was so much blood from the animals that were slain at Passover. What was God saying to them in this Old Testament system? The wages of sin is death. And these animals are dying because of your sin. These animals are paying the price so you don't die, they're dying. And God's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm looking over your sin, I'm covering it over right now until Christ comes, until my son comes, but I want you to be reminded sin has a price and these animals are paying it. It's a symbol every day, twice a day. And then in spades on Passover, the application is simply this. You say, well, God doesn't, doesn't strike people down today for their sin. No, no, he doesn't. We live under the new covenant, under grace. But you say, well, what's God doing about sin today? One of two things happens with sin today. Listen very carefully. Sin is not free, and God doesn't overlook it. If you're saved, if you've been born again by faith in Jesus Christ, your sin, past, present, future is all in Christ. It's forgiven. So even when we sin as Christians, we're not held responsible for the penalty of the sin. We are for the act, and God chastens us, but it doesn't, it doesn't make us lost again. Everybody follow that? We are in Christ forever. For the lost man or woman, the person who's not come to Christ and had their sin paid for by the blood of Christ, they remain responsible for their sin. And just because God doesn't judge in the moment, the Bible says he stores it up. The Bible says the symbol is this, he puts it in a cup. And then you get to the book of Revelation, when God begins to pour out his wrath on earth, you know what it says? He pours the cup out. He pours out the wrath that's been stored up. The Bible says God's angry with the wicked every day. But he doesn't express it right now because we're in a day of grace. And the Bible says God is long-suffering and patient. Aren't you glad about that? But there will come a day when his long-suffering and his patience will reach its limit. 
and it will be time for judgment. But these offerings were a, a picture of that. And thirdly, those animal sacrifices were a temporary atonement, if you will. They were an appeasing of the wrath of God against sin, again, looking forward to the coming of Christ, who is the perfect sacrifice. Then the writer says, let me give you the proof of the ineffectiveness of these offerings. Look at the first two verses again. Now remember, he's saying this to Jews who are steeped in the legal system and in the offerings. This was, this was revelationary to them. Listen to what he says. For the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. He's saying in those first two verses, those offerings were ineffective. They couldn't do what you were looking for, but Jesus can. Let me illustrate it for us. If you or I get sick and we go to the doctor and we have something wrong with us, the doctor uh, evaluates and says, okay, here's what's wrong with you. And he gives us a bottle of medicine. He says, take this medicine, and this medicine will fix what's, what's ailing you. So you go home, you take the medicine, and in a few days, good as new. The thing that was making you sick is all gone. Uh, the medicine, listen, was effective. When you look at that bottle, it doesn't remind you that you're still sick. It reminds you that you used to be sick, and now you're not sick. Okay? Now, if the medicine's ineffective, if the doctor says, well, we don't have anything for that, but if you take this medicine, it'll help you feel better, but it really won't cure you. So then you take the medicine, but it's not really effective to do what you need, is it? It really can't do what you want. You want to be completely free of whatever's wrong with you, but the medicine can't do that. So every day when you look at that bottle, you know what it reminds you of? I'm still sick. This medicine can't fix me. I'm still sick. When you see it, you take it, but I'm still sick. Watch this. Under the Old Testament system, they brought their offerings, they sacrificed them on the altar, they looked at that sheep, and you know what it said to them? You're still sick. It didn't fix what's wrong with you. All it did was make you feel better. All it did was atone temporarily for the sin, but it didn't fix what's wrong with you because you're lost. But when you get Jesus, you got the remedy. When you get Jesus, you don't just fix the symptoms, you fix the problem. Because the Bible says when you get saved, you get a new heart, become a new creation in Christ. And so when you look at Jesus, what do you remember? I used to be lost, and I used to be dead, and I used to be sin sick, but not anymore. And so when you see Jesus, it reminds you of what you used to be and what you are now. Do you see the difference? That's what he's saying right here. Those sacrifices were repeated every year, every day, in the morning, in the evening, every year at Passover. Every year the high priest goes in, you got to do it over and over and over. Why you got to do it over and over and over? Because it didn't work. Listen, a thing that's effective, you don't have to keep doing it. A thing that's effective takes care of the problem and you move on. He's saying the Old Testament system couldn't fix us, but Jesus came. And Jesus died on the cross. And he's the perfect sacrifice. He's the one offering forever. He's the perfect cure for what's wrong with mankind. When I look at the news every day and I read the news and I look at society and I look at the local news and I look at world news and our national news, you would agree with me there's, there's wickedness, isn't there? 
meanness and ugliness and unkindness and people hurting one another and killing one another and doing things that you, that you think, man, those things shouldn't be happening. And I mean across the spectrum. What's the problem? Mankind has a sickness of the soul, doesn't he? We have sin sickness. We're, we're, we're wicked because of our sinfulness. And man has tried to patch that thing in a lot of ways, hasn't we? Man, took a lot of, we take a lot of, of, of metaphorical pills, don't we? Well, you can just meditate. It'll make you a better person. Not really. Make you sleepy. It don't make you better. You know, do this thing. Get this religion. Do this thing over here. Hey, we're going to have this, this counseling, and you get to this count. And listen, I thank God for professional counselors and their skills. I thank God for them. But I want you to know, nothing in this world is going to fix what's wrong with us but Jesus. Nothing in the world is going to fix what's wrong with humanity in society in general but Jesus. He's the only one. That's why the writer said he's the perfect sacrifice. He's the one who can cure our sin problem. He's the one who can make us different. And if you're here today or you're watching online and you think, man, my, my life will get better if I have more stuff. My life will get better if I have this job. My life will get better if I have this, that, or thing. No, your life won't get better till you have Jesus. That's it. When you have Jesus, then you'll be pointed in the right direction. When you have Jesus, you'll have the cure that fixes everything that's wrong with us and makes us new. That's what the writer's saying. Now, he says one more thing here that I want us to look at. Before we move to the next passage, he said, in verse 2, he said, for, for then would they have not have ceased to be offered, the offerings for the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. That's interesting, isn't it? If they had the perfect sacrifice instead of these animals, they wouldn't have any more consciousness of sin. Here's what he's saying. Those Old Testament saints always had a consciousness of sin. New Testament saints don't. Now, let me explain what that means and what it doesn't mean. In the Old Testament, when they brought those sacrifices, and they, let's say I brought my, my little lamb down there, and I said to the priest, man, I have, I've sinned this week, and, and I, I need you to, to offer this lamb for me for a sin offering, so, you know, to cover my sins. Even while, he's, even while he's killing the sheep, the lamb, and he's putting it on the altar, and he's burning it, and the blood's shed to cover my sin, I know I'm still guilty. You follow me? It's a consciousness of sin. I know as an Old Testament saint, the blood of that lamb ain't removing my sin. I'm still guilty. So every day the Old Testament think, saint is thinking, I got to bring these offerings every day. How about this? If we lived under the Old Testament system, you and I need a lot of sheep, don't we? I need a whole herd. Why? Because every day one of, them's, one of them's getting the ax. Why? Because I keep sinning. And every day I know that no matter how many sheep I bring, it's not fixing me. Now, here's what's different in the New Testament. When you come to Jesus and you confess your sin and say, God, you're right, I'm wrong, you're holy, I'm wicked, forgive me. I believe Jesus died for me on the cross. Forgive my sin, save me. And the moment that we do that, and the moment we put our faith in Jesus, God makes us new on the inside, creates a new creation in Christ. You get a new heart. Now here, listen to this. The consciousness of sin changes. I know in the moment I got saved, I'm no longer guilty forever, for eternity. I'm no longer guilty before God of my sin because Jesus just paid for all of it. 
Now, I have a consciousness that I'm still in this flesh and that I have a, a spiritual fight every day. But when I confess my sin daily now, I'm not getting saved over. What I'm doing is just keeping my walk with God close. Everybody follow the difference? All I'm doing now is saying, God, I don't want anything to come between you and me. No errant thoughts, no words, no deeds. God, forgive me. All I'm doing is, is, is keeping a close walk with him. I'm not getting saved over and over. My sin's not getting forgiven over and over because every sin I'll commit the rest of my life is already under the blood of Christ. Different consciousness of sin, you see? Now, here's a cool thing about a conscience. God created human beings with a conscience. When you were a kid and you did something your mom and daddy said not to do, you felt bad about it. It was exciting when you did it. You thought, man, I'm going to get away with eating these cookies when she said don't eat them. But then later you feel bad. Man, I did what I, was, what I wasn't supposed to do. Humanity has that. When people do wrong, they have a conviction about it. Now, here's what's happened in our society. We have done wrong for so long, we've seared our conscience. We've done wrong for so long that it no longer bothers us anymore. But if you're a child of God, you can't sear your conscience. If you're really saved, the Holy Spirit isn't going to leave you alone. Because now your conscience is connected to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, and he will bug the daylights out of you. Right? You say, man, no matter how many times I do this thing or say this thing or think this thing, God beats me, he whoops, takes me to the woodshed every time. Why? Because he loves you and you belong to him. You see the difference in the consciousness? Those Old Testament saints had to live perpetually with the fact they need something better than these sheep. You and I have the blessing of being in Christ and knowing, man, we got the perfect sacrifice and it's all taken care of. We don't have to do another thing. We're secure in Christ. In fact, Paul said in Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nobody can bring an accusation against you in Christ. Nobody. He goes on to point out that Jesus is the one who justifies. He's the king. He's the highest authority. So who are you going to complain to? Satan's the accuser of the brethren. He goes before God and accuses us all the time. And unfortunately, we give him plenty of ammunition, don't we? But when he accuses us before the Father, the Father simply says, no, the perfect sacrifice was given. They're all taken care of. No condemnation. Perfect sacrifice in Christ. In verses 5 to 10, let's look at it very quickly. He gives a confirmation from prophecy. Now, to save time, I'm going to tell you where he's reading from. He's reading from Psalm chapter 40, verse 6 and 7. That's the passage that he quotes here. Let's read it, and I'll explain it to you very quickly. He says, therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Therefore, it's connected to what he just said about the perfect sacrifice. Now he's going to prove it with this quote from the Old Testament. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the volume of the book it is written in me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. There's the old covenant. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. That means he takes away the old, he may establish the new. Verse 10, by that, 
for we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, for the sake of time, let me, let me tell you what he's saying here. This, the Holy Spirit led the writer to Hebrews, take this Old, passage, this Old Testament passage from Psalm chapter 40 and make the application to Jesus. And, and David wrote that, and here's what it is. It is a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus is saying there, number one to him, he said, you have, he's saying to the Father, you have prepared a body for me. What's he talking about? The incarnation. He's saying, in this plan for me to be the perfect sacrifice, for me to pay for the sin of the world, to redeem those whom you've given me, you have prepared a body for me to do this thing. It happened in the incarnation. God prepared a human body. Jesus left heaven, took on flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, lived the human life here sinlessly, went to the cross and died for the sin of the world. So the body prepared for him to come. Number two, he said, you had no pleasure, Father, in those sacrifices, burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. What does he mean God the Father had no pleasure in it? Well, it means two things. Number one, it had no pleasure in it. The Father had no pleasure in it that it couldn't pardon sin. It didn't do anything for sin, but appeased the wrath at the moment, a propitiation temporarily, an atonement until tomorrow when they bring another offering, and next year when they do another Passover. So really, God had no pleasure in those offerings because they didn't do anything. Secondly, you know what happened in Israel? Their offering system, their bringing of offerings became, became uh, habitual. It just became a, a rote habit. Those offerings, by the way, in the Old Testament were to be connected to a repentant heart. It was on the inside God was looking. I don't have time, but in the Old Testament, God said to Israel, he said, hey, I told you don't bring blemished animals. You know what they were doing? They were looking in their herd and finding the sheep and the lamb that were messed up anyway, the blind ones, the halt ones, the lame ones. I can't get any money for them, so I'm going to give them to God. And they were bringing them to the offering and giving them to God. And God, through the prophet, said, hey, try giving those sheep that you're sacrificing to me to the governor to pay your taxes and see what he says. God said, no, bring, bring the unblemished, bring the best. Why? Because those unblemished sheep represented Jesus in all of his perfection. God had no pleasure in that nonsense. God said to them, your offerings, God said, one time God said, stop, stop bringing them. Don't even, don't even bring them if you're not going to do it any different than that because it's worthless. I'm not receiving it. So Jesus says to the Father, hey, you prepared me a body and you had no pleasure in those sacrifices. You know what Jesus said? But you will accept the one I'm going to give, the one I'm going to do on the cross. Hey, here's a word of warning for us very quickly. We come here and worship and we sing the songs, Jesus, I love you and, you know, all that. It's worthless unless it's really in your heart. Bring your offering, put it in the box, you know, put it in the plate. Well, God, I'm giving you this offering. Yeah, well, if you were mad when you wrote the check, you might as well keep it. Really? Jesus said, man, I look in the heart. I don't look on the outside. It's not what you gave. It's not what you do. It's not what you said. It's not how you sing. It's not what you did. It's the purpose behind what you did. Same thing. If we're going to worship God, we have to worship him in spirit and truth, not, not with all the outside trappings that the world says are so important today. Then Jesus says something I really like, and I'm moving through this quick 
but it's so good. Then he said, Father, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. Man, I love that. You know what Jesus is saying? The whole Old Testament's about me. He said, before I got here, we already warned them. We already told them I was coming. Let me give you one example. Don't, don't turn there. I'm, I'm going to show you this. We've got like six minutes, seven minutes, ten minutes if I stretch it. Let, listen. When Jesus arose from the grave, right, on resurrection day, in Luke 24, there's two disciples who are walking to Emmaus. Remember them guys? And they're walking along talking about all the things that just happened, the death of Jesus, his burial, his resurrection, the women claiming to have gone to the tomb, seeing Jesus. In re- they're, they're, they're discussing this thing. And the Bible says Jesus in his resurrection body came alongside them and started walking with them. Man, it's a fantastic, fantastic thing. Listen to this. In verse 27 of Luke 24, and beginning at Moses, where's that at in the Old Testament? The first five books. So Jesus started in Genesis 1.1. Listen to this. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus walking along with them. You read the whole account. Hey, what you guys talking about? Oh man, did you just fall off the banana truck? Didn't you know... Didn't you know what just happened in Jerusalem? They didn't even know they're talking to the one who did all that. And so Jesus starts in the books of Moses and expounds to them. Listen to this. Then they drew near the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them, and he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. When he began to break bread, they go, Oh, wait a minute. We know who this is, and then Jesus left. Listen, 32. And they said one to another, now listen to this. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? Jesus said to the Father in Psalm 46 and 7, hey, in the volume of the book, it's written about me. And on the road to Emmaus, he goes back to Moses, and he expounds the scriptures so they can see him in there. And then these guys testify, well, didn't our hearts burn within us? Didn't the word of God burn in our hearts when he was explaining that to us? And then Jesus said, I've come, Father, to do your will. The moving force in the ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth was to do the will of the Father. That's it. Over and over, Jesus would say, I can't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I can't do anything unless I see it of the Father. What was Jesus saying? Man, I came here to do what the Father sent me to do, and I'm not turning to the left, I'm not turning to the right, I'm doing the will of the Father. Jesus came, the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father, by the way? That you be forgiven of your sin. That I be forgiven of my sin. That I be restored to a right relationship with him. That I go live with him forever and ever and ever. That's the will of the Father. He loves you. He wants you to live with him. He wants you to have a relationship with him. And then finally, let me close with this. Look at verse 10 again. But that we, but that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. Hagiazo. What's, it, what's that mean, Hagiazo? It means to be made holy. Here was the will of the Father. That we come to Christ and that we be made holy. Why is that important? Stay with me two minutes and I'm going to close. Why is it important that we be made holy? Because no unholy thing can be in the presence of God. 
God loves us, but we are, we, listen, in our, in our sinfulness, we are as unholy as there is anything created. We're unholy. God wants to have fellowship with us, but he can't because we're unholy. So he sent Jesus, who was crucified, to pay for our sin, buried, rose again the third day, and by faith in Jesus, we are saved once and for all, forgiven of our sin once and for all. In Christ, we are sanctified, made holy. Hi, Gazo. Holiness, sanctification comes in two forms for us right now. Listen, it comes in, it comes in positional and practical. In Christ, we are positionally perfect. I like that. When I go before the Father in Jesus Christ, he sees me as nothing but perfect. Right on. Okay? That's the only way you can get in. Practically is a different story right now. Okay? Practically means we are in a process of sanctification in this life because we are progressively be, to be moved to the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. As a child of God, if you're saved, you should be in a process of sanctification. Sin should be less the habit of our life, and holiness should be more the habit of our life. If we're not moving in that process, we really ought to do some soul searching. Okay? Number one, make sure we're saved. Number two, make sure we're surrendered to God to make us an image of Christ. Let me close with this. All of that, all of that to prove and say Jesus is the great sacrifice. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus did what all the stuff in the old covenant can never do. You and I are blessed beyond description to live in the church age. We're blessed beyond description to live in an age of grace. All you have to do, all that's required of us is to come to Jesus by faith, confess our sin, and ask him to save us. That's it. I would say to you this morning, if you've never been saved, if you've never been born again by faith in Christ, get saved right now. Do it where you sit in that seat. When I pray in a moment, cry out to God. Ask him to save you. Confess your sin to him. Ask him to save your soul. God wants to save you. He loves you. If you are saved, pray about that practical sanctification. Pray about living holy and honoring God with your life. Would you do that this morning? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the perfect sacrifice in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you paid for our sin forever. Lord, we never need another sacrifice. The death of Christ on the cross, his shed blood was sufficient to bring complete healing to the human soul for all who will trust you. Father, if there's a man or a woman here this morning online under the hearing of your word, and Lord, they've never been saved right now in this moment. God, may they cry out to you and say, God, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to be. Forgive my sins. Save me, Lord. I want that perfect sacrifice applied to my life. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and sing, if I can help you, if I can answer a question, you come on the first verse. If you need to be baptized or join the church or you have something that that you want to be praying about, you come let me know on the first verse. You come. Beautiful Lord, wonderful Savior, I know for sure all of my days are held in your hand, crafted into your perfect plan. 
gently call me into your presence, guiding me by your Holy Spirit. Teach me, dear Lord, to live all of my life through your eyes. I'm captured by your holy calling. so much for being here this morning. If you're a guest here, take a minute to fill out the guest card. Just give us a record of your visit. We'd love to send you a letter this week. Tonight, Awana, uh, 6 o'clock tonight, we're in, we started a series last week in Joshua. Tonight, Joshua's going to send some spies into Jericho, and they're going to stay at a lady's house named Rahab. It's a really good passage. By the way, Rahab was a harlot, a Gentile that lived in Jericho. God saved her. She became a Jewish proselyte, married a Jewish guy. You know who her descendants were? Boaz, who married Ruth, who ended up being in the family line of David and Jesus. Talk about grace. You're going to come back and uh, be part of that tonight, okay? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, bless this afternoon in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.